Hello, welcome to episode one of the Word of Good podcast. My guest today is Dr. Andrew McFall, teaching fellow in accounting and finance at King's Business School, King's College London. Dr. McFall's key research interests relate to the topics of personal savings and retirement behaviour, with a particular focus on investment schemes offered in the workplace. Andrew holds a PhD from the University of York, where his thesis looked at the economic, social and behavioural factors influencing the investment behaviour and decision-making of schemed participants in board-based employee stock ownership plans. Before joining King's College London, Andrew held a research position at the University of Oxford, supporting on a project in the financial services industry. He also worked as a research fellow in the Cabinet Office as part of the Behavioural Insights team, where he assisted central government to apply insights from behavioural economics and psychology to public policy. His research interests include retirement and savings behaviour, work-based savings schemes and employee share ownership plans. I've been working with Andrew over the last couple of years to look into research into financial wellbeing in the workplace and I'm really excited to have Andrew as our inaugural guest. Hi Andrew, so um, we are here at King's College London, we are in the throes of looking at the second phase of research into financial well-being in the workplace and how employers can help. You've been doing loads of reading and your own research over the last few years into workplace financial well-being. What is sticking out to you at the moment as the kind of one thing people need to kind of be aware of or the most interesting thing you're coming across at the moment? The, um, we've been conducting interviews, speaking to uh, HR directors, reward managers, and others related to the field. And um, I think what's standing out is that we need to be encouraging people to make better decisions for themselves, employees for themselves. Um, so I think the the broad concepts being used in academia and this is this concept of libertarian paternalism that we can need to create a situation which allows free choice to employees, so that in a sense they're able to make their own financial decisions but also encouraging them to do good decisions for themselves. And what's become accepted is, uh, is that there is a space for this, and this is the concept of libertarian paternalism, so it's both liberal freeness and paternalism choice, in a sense, um, in a sense encouraged choice. And so is that the same way as kind of self-directed learning? So what you kind of give somebody the tools to make the, to kind of take the learning path that they need to and make the decisions they need to? I think the, the concept being put forward by Richard Fehler, Cass Sunstein, um, Richard Fehler won a Nobel Prize in 2017 for work in this area, and Cass Sunstein uh, was in, uh, previously at Chicago, was an advisor to Barack Obama, and um, now a professor at Harvard. Um, the idea is that you can, and it's been particularly used in policymaking, that you can create certain decisions or certain choices which nudge people towards a particular good decision for themselves. So. The idea is to make people healthier, wealthier, happier, and can do this. The classic one in recent years, is, was, uh, at least in the UK, was the pension plan. It's moving in from an opt-in system to an opt-out system. So where before, in 2012, you would have had to sign a form saying, I want to join the pension plan. Now you sign a form that says, in a sense, I want to opt out. Participation rates went from 2.7 million to 7.7 million simply from changing our forms. This is still giving people the choice. You can still have the option to, um, in a sense, either join or not join the pension uh, pension system, but by simply placing a form in a certain direction, in this case um, an opt-out system, hugely impacts choi- um, the outcomes. And so that's about making one decision a little bit more difficult 
to take than another. So you can drive people towards what is traditionally the right decision to make by making the alternative slightly more difficult. So I guess we've seen that with um, in another well-being context in with smoking. So mm. you know, despite all the adverts about the effect it has on you and the, the changing of the packets and putting them out of sight, you know, none of that really had an effect until you actually stopped people from smoking indoors. So all of a sudden, going outside in the cold and the rain became a less, much less attractive option than actually just quitting smoking. Yeah, so as, as I mentioned before, Richard Fraley, the Nobel Prize winner, um, he, he, he's big on that, so I had the opportunity to meet him, and he was saying that a lot of the, the science is quite simple, basically if you want people to do things, make it easy, if you don't want people to do things, make it a bit more difficult for them. And the evidence space is, is quite clear on this. So the, the, the big thing for me on this is that HR people need to be doing thinking like this and in a sense adopting some of the skills and knowledge and kind of um, expertise of marketing people. Because marketing people for a long time have known that if you want people to buy stuff, in a sense more of their services and products, nudge them towards particular things. HR people need to adopt some of these same skills. I think that's the, the way that the HR industry, particularly the reward aspect of HR industry, needs to head in if different floors are going to help in the financial wellbeing sphere. Which is really interesting because I think um, in a benefits perspective, we've toyed with the idea quite a lot around kind of social proof. So, you know, if I go to buy a product on Amazon, which uh, rightly or wrongly is the, the place I usually go to buy this stuff, uh, to buy anything, you look at the reviews and you can kind of get that social proof where someone else who's bought that product or service is able to, to give you a comment and a rating. And I guess we've toyed with an industry about kind of, could you give benefits ratings, for example? So could people start to tell each other that, you know, selecting this benefit was an easy process, understanding it was really good, and also some feedback on the fact that, you know, I had to make a claim on this insurance product and it paid out, it paid out quickly, and I'm really glad I took that product. I guess that kind of thinking is really interesting in HR. Yeah, process. so I, I teach uh, behavioural finance here at King's and then I've done it a little bit in government, and I think what we found was that um, peer, you know, the peer effect is by far the most, amongst the most powerful uh, touches that you can have. So it's, we are as humans very much monkey see, monkey do, and you can see the fashions that we have when we see others doing it, we do it, but it's social media and all the other kind of aspects of this. It's, we do contextualise this a good decision, a good decision based upon what others are doing or this type thing. We do, we do look for, you can call it, um, there's all sorts of different names for it, but essentially we, do, we are looking for validation from each other or we're looking or if it's uncertainty, we look to see what others are doing to see if we should do something as well. It's, it's this, it, our peers are very important in our, from a behavioural science point of view. So, so on that point, so is it important for our financial well-being to know where we sit when compared to our peers? Is that, is that important for me to know as an individual? Yeah, so the, the, the existing research and economics on, like, it's not, often not phrased as financial well-being, but essentially it is, says that we get our kind of sense of happiness from money. So in a sense, does money make people happy? The question really is, do we feel that we are, in a sense, doing better than our peers? So the evidence isn't very clear that getting just particularly better off. So when we compare rich nations and poorer nations, we don't necessarily see an increase in happiness. But we do find is when you have wealthier people within a nation tend to be happier than people less wealthy up to a certain point. So sort of these tend to peak at various, various different amounts in different countries. But what we basically sort of seem to, the evidence seems to say is it's better to be a sort of a bigger fish in a smaller pond than a kind of, in a sense, a big fish in a smaller pond. So 
your sense of are you doing well right now in a sense really depends on how your peers are doing, your kind of friends and families. If they all have, in a sense, particularly high paying jobs in a sense, even if you've got a good job, it makes you feel inferior or your peers are all got relatively normal jobs and you've got above average job, it makes you feel superior. It gives you that kind of you reference yourself on how your your friends and family are doing, and that's I think that's just human normal human behaviour. So it's really interesting. So there, there was uh, I mentioned this in the book when we talk about kind of money and happiness. Um, there's been a lot of research to look at kind of what is the amount of money that makes somebody happy, and I think you're exactly right when you look at last year's the 2018 World Happiness Report. Um, somebody's happiness correlates with money until a certain point and then you know kind of as you add ten thousand dollars plus in chunks it starts to have no effect but broadly speaking it seemed to be as you hit all of Maslow's hierarchy of needs you know you kind of got shelter you got food you got basic health care and education it's once you get a little bit past that it starts to have really no huge effect um, and I think there was a big study in the US a couple of years old now that looked at the, the key figure was about $70,000. Once you hit $70,000, anything above that didn't really have a significant impact. But $70,000 was the figure at which you could make your financial commitments and have some money spare to spend on other things. And you didn't worry too much about money. Money would obviously still be a concern. So kind of in the UK, I don't know, $70,000 is probably about 70,000 pounds at the moment. But broadly speaking, it's kind of, um, I think at the time it was about 40 to 50,000 um, pounds. There's a, a company out with case study in the book called Gravity Payments in the US and their CEO found that research and actually really, really resonated with him. And so he turned all staff at Gravity Payments, which at the time was about 100 people, and gave them all $70,000 a year. So actually just that meant that some members of the board took pay cuts. He, he dropped from $2 million to $70,000. Um, and uh, obviously lots of people moved up, but that meant whether you were a receptionist, whether you were kind of product manager, whether you worked in the tech or design teams, you, you earned the same amount of money. Um, and they started to find the same thing, that actually the way people interacted with each other changed because all of a sudden everybody felt like a peer. Mm -hmm. So their hierarchy kind of took a little bit in a positive way, a bit of a kicking. Um, but the big implications of actually doing that is they found that things like um, their levers went up so people all of a sudden were able to pay down debts more easily which meant they left to go back to university they had more pregnancies than they ever had before in the first 12 months because people suddenly felt like they had enough money to actually start the family that they've been wanting to um, and he talks a lot on LinkedIn over the last couple of years about how the, the continuing impact that had but it felt really interesting to kind of put everyone on the same level the psychological impact of doing that as well as giving people the ability to, to pay their bills yeah, I think the the, the evidence in this, as, as you said at the start, is is, is, is quite strong on that. And I think at the most basic level, money is simply just an enabler, isn't it? It allows you to, for example, want to go to the cinema tonight or go out for dinner with your, your partner or so on. It just allows you to do that. I think where we think people get negative financial well-being is when it stops them doing what they want to do. So, for example, you'd like to go out for dinner tonight but simply can't afford to. That's where it's likely to be having its, its negative impacts, and it's, it's, so it's actually a lot of stuff around financial well-being is actually about freedom of choice and how much your finances are restricting or facilitating your your ambitions and your just general day-to-day -day, um, living desires, if you like. Which is interesting, right? Because obviously, when we look at this as a concept, workplace financial well-being had a huge focus on clearing debt and saving for retirement. Mm -hmm. um, only one of those solves an immediate problem. 
the, the another is a future problem. Mm. And and I, I think you've come across some research where you know people um, kind of make decisions today that benefit them today as opposed to making the right decisions. Yeah, the economics in this is well established for, for many, many, many years. It would rather we want a reward today rather than a, a reward a year from now or a, a week from now or so on. So we are, in a sense, we utility we get, the highest utility we get is always from some things in the present, which means most of us don't think long term about planning for the future and so on. That's that's quite that's pretty much a given fact now in, in economics that's accepted. It's a, so the problem is with things like retirement savings or anything along these lines is we're essentially giving up something today to have the rewards potentially in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, depending on when you retire. So this is this is against pretty much human behaviour and what we know that humans naturally are, in a sense, hardwired to, um, to do. It's really interesting. I think it's one of the things, uh, you and I have talked about this before, but doesn't seem to really be in the context of workplace financial well-being, people aren't really talking about it, is um, that immediate pressure people feel today to kind of conform and fit in. Um, and I know you and some of your students are looking at the moment around the impact things like debt are having on people's mental health and the prevalence of suicide related to debt. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So the, the evidence base isn't completely clear on this. There's a number of people trying to do kind of work on this, this notion that the pressure is that money puts you under can push people over the edge and I think you were discussing it recently yourself that there's in some cases it's relatively small amounts that people are committing suicide and other things over there's, there's, there's been news articles and documentaries and things on this that sometimes can be as little as £2,000 debt or thereabouts and sometimes even less than that are enough to push people over the edge in a sense it's this, this notion that if you get in a hole and feel you can't get yourself back out of it it's, it's going to be a source of despair um, Recent studies are showing that suicide rates are up quite significantly, particularly amongst um, younger generations. And it's, it's, I think it's still very much a hypothesis situation right now, but the, the, the question is, is it how important is money in this? And I think the, while it's, it, it, there's very little research to show this, I think it's quite clear that that is having an impact. And this is where things like the topic of financial well-being or any other way you want to phrase it becomes becomes real in a sense it is is impacting people's lives that is if you in a sense don't have sufficient money to get through the month to in a sense if it could be to pay bills or it could be simply to feed yourself and so on that's as impactful on you as anything else going on in your love uh, in your life like love or kind of all the other kind of aspects of life that can be a source of despair and um, it's, it's, it's not getting sufficient attention, I don't believe, right now. It's really, uh, there was um, a piece of research out by the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, which was founded um, with money and funding mm -hmm. by uh, Martin Lewis, the money mm -hmm. saving expert. So I think about four weeks ago, their research revealed that 400,000 people in with a debt problem in the UK consider suicide every year, mm -hmm. and 100,000 people attempt it. Yeah, they've got to pay, pay for the silent killer and there's a few other ones and that sort of, yeah. Yeah, and I think you know, I read something uh, that came out just a couple of weeks ago in the US, one in 15 students consider suicide because of their student debt. So the kind of debt we never used to really think about as debt, you know, it doesn't affect people's ability to apply for financial products. Yet even the pressure of that debt, the kind of shadow of that debt sat behind people is having an impact. And I think all of that and what we were talking about earlier kind of shows that we have a really strong emotional connection to money. Um, rightly or wrongly, the way that society has kind of has, has grown and how we've developed as humans, we've put some value on having money. Um, 
and you know people are obviously feeling the pressure to, to maintain a certain standard of living. Um, some research I read recently showed that you know two thirds of young people blame their poor financial situation on the pressure to feel that they need to match up to what success looks like when they look at people on Instagram with nice cars, nice clothes in, 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 in warm countries. Um, so do you think when you kind of combine that with that social proofing, do you think people are, even if they're in not a bad financial situation technically, if they're benchmarking themselves against something unobtainable, they're going to be unhappy with their financial situation? That's what I was um, sort of making reference to before. So I, I think one of the things you mentioned there is uh, money is important. I think it is, but it's, it's, it's actually much more nuanced than that. So I think we, we look to others for validation. So am I doing well in life right now or not? That depends on, in a sense, what I use as a reference point. In most cases, we're going to use our friends and family on that. Um, so things like earnings. So if you see somebody in a sense getting a new car, it makes you want to get a new car. This this type of thing. So if you see your neighbours, whatever, got a getting an extension, you're wondering why you're not. This we we do in a sense look to others for in a sense as a reference for success and things. And I think that's where money has its importance and where we probably need to be kind of, kind of careful. And it does potentially push people beyond their means in terms of the way the way they live. The same, uh, same side of it is you've got plenty of people who are quite comfortable with relatively low incomes and live within their means. So it's, I think the money being important is not necessarily the issues. I think the issues can sometimes be around how we validate ourselves, um, who we use as our kind of a reference point for success. Uh, when it comes to things like purchases, do we kind of can we understand that actually that person should put it all in credit cards actually they're you're in a better position than they are because now they've got big debt and you don't and so on so it's I think there's something more about how people interact with it and I think that's where I come back to this this concept before of um, libertarian paternalism I think what's what's making me feel this is more and more of an important topic in the area of financial well-being is if you think about marketing people marketing people have spent in a sense the last 60 70 years affecting how they can encourage us to spend more and more of our money in a sense so this we've got developed this consumer mentality over time and so there's a real science to it and there's literally nobody out there more or less doing the same thing for savings and for in a sense paying down debts and the things that would actually have a more impactful impact on our well-being and that's where we I believe that HR managers and particularly rewards teams within a kind of a HR function have a, a bigger place to play and that's why I believe that actually increasingly after conducting a range of interviews and spending the last few years speaking to people on the topic of financial well-being that if there's going to be major changes for the better for the average person in the country it's going to come from the employer and I think it is getting in some cases employers particularly HR managers and reward managers to think more like marketeers about how can we get people to save more, get themselves into less than debts, prepare more for retirement. And it's those three big areas that are still missing, I think, in in reward sphere. It's there's an awareness of it, but there's still not a science to it yet. It's really interesting. There was something I read recently um, called uh, The Rich Man in the Car Paradox. And the story goes that when you see somebody driving a nice car, you really think, wow, the guy driving that car or the woman driving that car is cool. Instead, you think, you know, if, if I had that car, people would think I was cool. So subconscious or not, that's kind of how people tend to think. And I guess that links into that kind of Instagram generation. Um, 
but something I read to say about the, the paradox of wealth is that people tend to want it to signal to others that they should be liked and admired. But in reality, those people bypass admiring you, not because they don't think wealth is admirable, but because they use your wealth solely as a benchmark for their own desire to be liked and to fit in and that kind of thing. And so I think changing people's relationship with money so that it isn't used as a benchmark in somebody's life um, and so that for employees, wealth is a way of controlling their time and providing them as options, exactly as you said, is much more important. So, you know, putting £500 a month towards a nice car um, gets you a nice car, but £250 a month, for example, towards a nice car gives you another £250, which gives you that breathing space and that freedom to make decisions around... Yeah, I think as you said before, you know, if you want to go to pizza at that evening, you don't have to really think too carefully about whether you can afford to do that. You can just kind of instinctively think, okay, yeah, I've got the money, I can do that. And that freedom makes you feel a little bit better about your life. And I think that's the evidence is that's where the financial well-being comes from, is where those restrictions are taken away. So it is encouraging people to, as you say, move maybe from that £500 a month to that 250 expenditure and therefore using another 250 to live a more comfortable life. That's the almost the holy grail right now in terms of where HR professionals and others could try and get their employees to think. As I say, the reason we're emphasising it is libertarian paternalism is you're not taking away choice. It's actually just putting things in place that would ensure people make better decisions while leaving choice. So the classic one, um, as I mentioned before, is the pension plans that's sort of opt in, opt out. But we've got lots of other ones, haven't we? There's some employers now pay 14 paychecks rather than 12. The idea of being that you get double paychecks just before Christmas and just before the summer holidays. So you're, in a sense, encouraging employees to live more modestly um, in a sense throughout the year, but for the two points where people tend to splurge around Christmas, in a sense, uh, as they go for the, want to pay for the summer holiday, that's already taken care of. Of course, you're not actually paying employees any more. You're just, in a sense, dividing up the paychecks slightly differently. But in a sense, we know most of us, in a sense, will put a holiday and put um, Christmas shopping onto credit cards. That's, in a sense, when people tend to accrue debts. So these relatively simple changes aren't taking away choice from the employee. They're just recognising that humans are human and, in a sense, making these relatively modest changes which can have dramatic impacts on their lives. It's really interesting. I think I'm aware of some um, countries in uh, the kind of Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, where pay um, is actually given in those slots isn't it so people actually get an additional pay at Christmas time um, because that, that's the, the government that's driven by the government to make sure that people actually have the money to spend and that they kind of balance their money well so that obviously doesn't negatively impact the economy um, I think it's it, it all seems to be about just generally changing people's relationship with money um, and I think again what's quite interesting about that is very few people are helping to do that there are lots of providers in the market that will help with uh, point of crisis um, very few are looking at kind of change in behavior and I think you know just thinking about that car example I gave earlier on you know we are using that person in that example that person's sports car as the only data point we have to say whether they're successful or not mm -hmm. without us knowing whether they lease that car whether they own that car whether they got themselves into debt because of that um, so I guess there's probably a piece there about with the advance of social media and, and the sites like Instagram, which have been proved to be, you know, the worst social media site for people's mental health, it's showing them that you know the the money and wealth is kind of what you don't see. You know, mm -hmm. somebody who has paid off their mortgage, you don't, you the house doesn't look any different if they've paid their mortgage off or not. Their car doesn't look any different whether they've leased it or they own it. Um, and so I think you know getting people to realise and change their own benchmarks is obviously going to be quite interesting. Um,
so thank you very much for the for your time today um i know we could talk about this for for a very long time um we're obviously doing um some research together which we'll be publishing soon so um, we'll make sure that people following this podcast can find out about that when it's published um but just before you go could you share with us what the best financial decision you think you've ever made is in your life um it's hard to say I, I, we my wife and i bought a house relatively recent december and i think as i say the share schemes uh, um were important at the time I, 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 i'm not offered share schemes my wife is we put more of our in a sense we use more of my salary to live off and we put more of her salary into the share schemes and i think that was a great form of savings for us and it since allowed us to buy a house or get a bit of deposit down for a house um, because it's a great way of recognising that if you in the share schemes, in a sense, it takes it out of your kind of your pay at source, the same way a tax works. You don't then see it for a long period of time. It's accruing, and you're you're forgetting it's there. And it's at a certain point you have a lump sum. I think for that us, that's a, for me, that's a perfect example of a yeah, essentially um, a, a saving scheme at work, which has made a huge life difference, and it's in a sense allowed us to in a sense. Get, get on the property ladder, something that's not easy um, uh, these days, but um, particularly, particularly if you live anywhere near London. Yeah. And um, the share scheme was, was very important in that. It's a work-based saving scheme. It's, it's, it has the human features in there. It does lock you in for a period of time. Of course. Yeah. It stops you in a sense accessing it, just dipping into that fund as and when you need, need to. At the same time, it's good from a behavioural point of view because you don't... Um, you forget it's there because it takes its source. You now, if you're your paycheck is X and you have it taken at source and it's £200 less, your paycheck's £200, you, you just see your paycheck as being smaller, you forget it's there. It's the same as tax. None of us think of our salaries as be, uh, our paychecks as being, we always think about it as net, not gross. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I think it works the same way with the share scheme. It's, um, and I think that's it's worked out very well for us. Um, and I'm a big advocate of share schemes as a, as a great investment system for allowing people to make milestones in their life children, getting married, getting engaged, these things where you need lump sums and they aren't easy to accrue. Excellent and, and very um, very rarely used as part of a financial well-being strategy at work. Mm. It kind of gets separate from pensions and benefits which is mm. quite interesting. Uh, Dr Andrew McFall, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Join the workplace wellbeing discussion online by tweeting your thoughts and questions to at World of Good Book. Thank you to my guests today and thank you for listening.